you know, one of the director's main jobs is to help everyone do their best work. And if everyone does their best work, you've got a good film at the end. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In today's episode, we're revisiting Jonathan Lynn's classic 1992 comedy, My Cousin Vinny, in honor of its 30th anniversary. The film tells the tale of Vinny, a wildly inexperienced New York lawyer who must save his teenage cousin and his friend from jail or worse after they are accused of murder in a backwater Alabama town. Complicating matters are Vinny's cranky fiance, an uncompromising judge, and a smooth-talking district attorney. In addition to My Cousin Vinny, Mr. Lin's directorial credits include the feature films The Whole Nine Yards, Trial and Error, and Clue, the pilot for the series Ferris Bueller, and episodes of Smart Guys, and Yes, Prime Minister. Following the Eastern Region Special Projects Committee Anniversary Series screening of the film at the DGA Theater in New York, Mr. Lin shares insight into the making of My Cousin Vinny with fellow director Raymond DeFolita. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. You know, I was talking about those, those scratchy, messy prints that you used to see at revival houses, and we especially asked for one. That's why this print looked so, so the way it did. Yeah, well, you succeeded admirably. <laughs> and and there, were, there were a couple of little cuts in it, too, and some words missing, but I didn't. I mean, it was a little darker and, you know, but it was great for me to see it on a big screen. I haven't seen that for 30 years. And I'd just like to say thank you to Raymond and the DGA and, and for putting this on and to, to all of you for coming out. Now, you had mentioned to me that you hadn't seen it uh, in that long, and I think you also said it had, it was, when the film was done was the last time you saw it, not much after. That's the last time I saw it with an audience. I, I didn't go to a premiere. I don't, I don't remember whether there was one or not, but I was already shooting another film. So I was in Washington, D.C. when the film opened. So, yes, I think the last time I saw it was at the last preview that we had, last test screening. The last time I saw it with an audience. So, interesting to see it with people again. Um, you know, as I said, the film, it, it's lasted so well and, and longer. Did you expect this to be something that was going to be 30 years later, you know, as, as loved as it is? Um, no, of course not. Can't expect that for any film. But, I mean, occasionally it happens... And that's just very fortunate. And you, you get it so right once in a blue moon that, that people still want to see it years later. But uh, every film you do, you do your best and you hope that it'll turn out to be something that people will love forever. And occasionally that happens. And sometimes it's something that they hate the moment they see it. <laughs> and everything else in between, there's... there's um, there's no predicting how people, how an audience will respond. We didn't know how the audience would respond to this film till the first test screening. In fact, when I showed it to the executives at Fox, they told me to cut out half an hour. They said it's too long. 
Uh, comedy shouldn't be more than about 90 minutes. And uh, would I please cut half an hour? And I said, which half an hour would you suggest? <laughs> and they said, oh, all right, well, you can have a test screening and, you know, then, then we'll get into this. So the test screening, unfortunately, the scores were through the roof. So after that, they just said, uh, we don't need to talk about cuts, of course. And um, I said, can I have a couple of days of reshooting shots that I don't like? Yes, yes, anything you want. So quite different once the test scores are good. And what was the initial critical reaction like? I, I, I feel like this was something that got appreciated more over the years. The initial critical reaction was fairly good. It wasn't raves. I mean, there, there were some, I think. But most of, most of the important critics gave it kind of three out of four stars. And I don't remember what they said, actually, and I don't really care. But I, I knew the audiences were loving it. And the, the reason I knew that, oh, I, I'm wrong. I did see it with audiences one, a few more times. Because when we finished making the film, Fox didn't really know how to go about marketing it, which makes one wonder sometimes why they pick films to make. But anyway, they didn't know what to do with it. And we didn't have a star. You know, Joe Pesci had just won the Oscar for um, The Goodfellas. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and, but nobody had ever heard of Marissa. And Joe was not a, what you'd call a marquee name. So they didn't know how to go about marketing it. And finally, Joe Roth, who was chairman of Fox, had this great idea. And he said, the only thing that's going to sell this film is people seeing it. So they had something over 900 free screenings all over America, and which were advertised on the radio. And in all, however they advertised, I don't know. Anyway, we played it to 900 houses. I saw two or three of them. And the audiences just were crazy about it. So there was a buzz. And when we opened, it did pretty well. You know, you mentioned that Pesci wasn't a star, and I believe he was not the first choice for this. Can you walk us through that? He was my first choice for it. And although it's true that he wasn't a star in the sort of Tom Cruise sense, he was obviously a very fine actor. Um, I've seen him in Raging Bull, and uh, I was a huge fan. But when the studio, when Fox asked me to do the film, they were already talking to Joe, which I thought was great. I believe that Danny DeVito was attached to it for about a year beforehand, and he was going to star in it and direct it, apparently. That's what I heard. I don't know if it's true, but I think it is. And then, you know... Um, when I was approached about it, Joe was already showing an interest. And uh, so there wasn't any other question about who would play Vinny. It really feels like a very different Hollywood because they're moving ahead with this movie and they're willing to do it without a star. I don't know. How, how expensive was the movie? Well, it wasn't very expensive. It was approximately $11 million, um, which uh, even then wasn't very much. And at that time, the average studio movie cost 18 million. So it was not exactly a low budget film, but it certainly wasn't um, considered expensive. And I think Joe Roth just liked the script. I, I, I don't know how they thought it would turn out, but I think 
You know, one sometimes wonders, do studios make film or did they in those days just as kind of programme fillers? I mean, you know, maybe they just needed a certain number of films to be distributed that year and maybe this one was possible. I don't know the background of any of that. All I know is that when I was approached about it, I had just made a film called Nuns on the Run in Britain and uh, uh, somebody here has used to have seen it. Um, and... Um, Joe Roth really liked it and Fox distributed it. So that, that's why I was asked, I think. The, the script is by Dale Lawner, who had writ, written Ruthless People and Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Um, and, and you come from a writing background, an acting and a writing background. So when you came on, how finished a project was it? Did you work with Dale Lawner and, and develop the script further? Yes, up to a point. The script wasn't really quite ready to do. I thought it was very funny and very beautifully written. I'd never seen characters like Vinny or Lisa really on the screen before. And uh, it needed some work. It would have been about three hours long in the draft that I had. And the ending was problematical because it was never revealed if any, who, if anyone, had actually murdered the clerk, which bothered me a lot because, you know, this was not Antonioni or you know, La Ventura. Um, I think in this kind of film, the audience wants to go home with all the loose ends tied up and everything resolved. So I made that change in the at the end of the courtroom scene. I also reorganized the courtroom scenes because in the script I was given, Vinnie understood that the tires were not made by the Buick Skylark in the restaurant when, where he was having lunch with Lisa. And I thought that was too soon. It seemed to me that that moment should be held back till the latest possible second so that, you know, I was approaching it as a trial movie. I mean, it was funny, but it was a trial movie. And in a trial movie, you know, you, you want to think that there is no chance that the defendants and the defending lawyer are going to win until somebody pulls something out of the hat at the very last minute. So I postponed that. And I added quite a few funny lines. But it's essentially it's Dale's script. My experience in shooting courtrooms is that as, ex as much fun as a courtroom scene is to watch, it's, it's grueling and boring to make um, because of all the coverage and reactions and stuff. So... Was it or wasn't it for you? Yes, it was absolutely grueling. Um, for a start, we were in a, a concrete shed in Georgia, and it was this time of year, May, and um, it had a corrugated iron roof, and the temperature outside was about 100, and the temperature inside was <laughs> off the charts, um, and all the actors had to have little personal fans, battery fans, and air conditioning was brought in, but it really wasn't very effective. Um, and, of course, because it wasn't a real soundstage, it was just a place where we'd built the set. Uh, we could hear aeroplanes passing over regularly. So there were a lot of physical problems with shooting in the courtroom. It took us about a month in the courtroom. And um, the other problems were that so much of the film, it's probably nearly half the film, maybe it is half the film, takes place in the courtroom. The, pr the problem is to keep it visually interesting. So, you know, I had all the walls flew out, 
the wall behind the jury, the wall behind the judge, uh, the the wall opposite the jury. Um, there was a balcony upstairs which we couldn't really use much for practical purposes, but I could put a camera up there for the high shots. It was built so there was room for a crane to move around. And Peter Deming and I really worked out every courtroom shot in advance so that we... I mean, I don't think these are apparent to somebody watching the film, but I think they keep it from getting boring. The Each courtroom scene is shot, alternate scenes are shot from the jury's side or opposite the jury's side as the main point of view, which meant a tremendous amount of relighting all the time because we did, you know, it's scene by scene. And then there were also the scenes behind the, 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 behind the judge, the shots behind the judge. So... The, and then we wanted to keep the camera moving the whole time. So it was grueling. And then there was coverage on all the jurors and all the members of the public who got more and more, you know, the court got fuller and fuller as the trial progressed, coverage on Marissa, coverage on the two boys. Um, it was a tremendous amount of shooting um, that had to be done in order to be able to, you know, to, to know that we had it all there. So, yes, it took a long time and it was, I think it was kind of boring. Um, not for me. For me, it was just a battle to get it done in time. It wasn't, wasn't ever boring for me or for the DP. or for, But I, I think um, the actors had to sit around a lot and, you know, it took, took time. So you were... You did the whole thing in the South, then, the whole movie, top to bottom. We did the whole film in Georgia. And we, we couldn't do it in Alabama because they don't, didn't have any film equipment in Alabama. They didn't have any film people there. So we did it in Georgia, um, about, I'm guessing, 30 or 40 miles outside of Atlanta. Mm. I've, I've heard, I've never worked with Joe Pesci, but I've heard that if you, if you just let him go, he'll improvise amazing stuff. And, and uh, uh, the, the famous scene in Goodfellas apparently was was one of those, you'd think I'm a clown. Um, was there much of that here? No, there was a little bit. Uh, there were a couple of funny lines that Joe came up with. Uh, one really good one when uh, he said, Mrs. Riley, and only Mrs. Riley. Uh, that was Joe. Joe. Um, there were one or two others. Um, there were lines that, that I quoted from him that went into the script. When we first met, he... Um, he, we were talking about the script, and he said, well, there's these two youths. And I said, what? And he said, the two youths. And I said, what did you say? And he said, what? And I said, what? And finally he said, oh, two youths. And I thought, this is too good. That has to go in. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he improved a lot of interesting m movement, his swagger around the courtroom at the end when he's won, um, you know, lots of, uh, uh, you know, t I, I, he had a lot of freedom, but he did largely stick to the script. I think almost entirely stick to the script. And you need to in a courtroom movie. I mean, every, everything that's mentioned in the film sooner or later becomes relevant. And so, you know, you really have to honour that. Yeah, it's um, one of the pleasures of it is is it's so well crafted story wise. You it's the setups and payoffs yes. really do work. Um, how much do you direct a, an actor like Pesci? How much does he want to be directed? I, I'm, 
There's that old Hollywood story about how, uh, old Hollywood analogy about how a director of movie stars is like a lion tamer in a circus. And you, you go into the cage with the lion with a, a whip and a chair and you want the lion to be to look as dangerous as possible. Um, but you have to get it to do what you want. Um, Joe was very directable on the set. I gave him, a, I mean, a lot of freedom. I didn't give him line readings or, you know, I didn't tell him how to say anything. But he was extremely directable in terms of where I wanted him to be, where, where the camera would be, where, where he would be, and all of that stuff. Totally 100% obliging. Um, but the, the way he created the character was him, you know, great acting. And the same is true of Marissa. Well, I was going to say that brings us to Marissa Tomei. This was the breakout role, and it, it was sort of a stunning, um, you know, kind of showbiz moment when she won the Oscar for this. Yeah. And she's just absolutely so just vivid and exciting and charming and, and just it's an amazing performance. It's um, a wonderful performance. Talk about how she wound up in the film and everything I asked you about Pesci. I'd love to know about her. She wound up in the film because... Uh, Fox were uh, were offering it to actors who they had deals with already, um, some of whom were completely wrong for the part, but they had it and they were on the lot. And you know how that works. A studio can reclaim some of the money that they've been giving to an actor who they have a deal with because the actor has an office and staff and all of that stuff. So it's cheaper for them to hire someone they have a deal with. Anyway, that didn't work out. And they offered it to lots of Italian-American actresses, well, a few, the few who anyone had heard of, who uh, all passed on the role. I think they thought it wasn't big enough. It's not that big a part, actually. Then one day I was over at Paramount because John Landis had said he was f finishing making a film called Oscar with Sylvester Stallone. And um, would I like to come over and look at the amazing set before it was torn down? So I said yes, and I went over there, and um, I saw a scene being shot with this uh, little blonde flapper, 1920s film, and uh, she seemed to have very good timing. So I said to John, who is that? And he said, she's called Marissa Tomei, and I said, can you tell me about her? And he said, well, you know, just as she's very good. So I said, can I see some footage? He said, yes, so we went to the cutting room. And I saw that, you know, she was a good actress. I had no idea if she was right for Lisa. I came back to the uh, the office and said, can we get Marissa Tomei in to, to read for Lisa? And I was told that, no, that was not going to be possible because William Morris had put up everybody they had who they thought was suitable for the part and they represented Marissa and they had not suggested her. <laughs> so I said, well, I don't mind if they've suggested her, can you get her in? So she came in, did a wonderful reading, uh, and then Fox were worried they'd never heard of her. Um, and so they said, can you do screen tests of your three top choices? So I did screen tests of the three top choices, and it was obvious that Marissa, obvious to me that she was the best. And I showed the tape to Joe. And then I went to have a meeting with Fox, and they picked one of the other actresses. So we had a big argument, and I thought, 
oh, I have to produce my trump card. So I said, um, Joe Pesci thinks it should be Marissa. And, of course, no studio ever wants to have a fight with the, the leading actor immediately before a film begins. So they said, oh, well, you know, it's your film. You, 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 you must do what you think best. You do, you cast whoever you want. That was it. Who, who are the other two, or won't you say? I'm not going to say I, that. I had a feeling you were going to say that. I'm not going to say that, and they're both very good actresses yeah. and have done fine. Do we have questions? Anyone? Yes. The main one I wanted to reshoot was when the car comes into the town square and it's very high, the, the main shot of it going around. It, it's intercut with lots of local people looking at the car, making this immense noise with pop music. But I had the camera in a bad place for the actual arrival when it parked. It wasn't strong enough. So I wanted to reshoot that so that the camera was that the car came right up to the camera, and then we saw Joe's boot, cowboy boot, come out when he opened the door, and that was a shot I had in mind, and that somehow we hadn't done that day. And there were a couple of others like that. There wasn't very much. That's the only one I remember. I think there were a couple of others. They were not significant. I mean, it was a couple of days work and Fox only allowed it because the numbers were so good that they would have allowed me to do anything. Speaking of, of shots, how'd you, this is pre-digital effects, so how'd you do the owl? The owl is a real owl. So uh, you've directed an owl on cue to turn and... Yes. <laughs> how we did it, it wasn't easy because owls are wild animals and they can't be tamed. Um, but he, the owl had been made, the owl is only about that big. Screech owls, I would have expected it to be enormous, but it's about that high. And we had got him used to the sound of gunfire for some time before we made the film, before we got to that scene. And then he was sitting on this branch and we had, he had a little piece of string around his ankle to, keep him there, but he could fly away. And I thought, how are we going to get him to open his mouth and screech? And I noticed that the wrangler gave him little bits of meat, and every time that happened, the owl opened his mouth, took the meat, closed his beak, and then as he swallowed the meat, his beak opened. And I thought, well, we'll put a screech on that. <laughs> so... We, I set up the shot with, uh, we had a sort of a high rostrum and the camera was going to track along the branch and come to the owl. And just before the camera picked up the owl, he was given a little piece of meat. So right after the camera got there, he opened his beak and screeched. And of course, we'd had a couple of more screeches anyway, which you'd heard inside the house. So then Joe came bursting out behind the owl and that was, uh, uh, I, we changed the focus from, or rack. Rack focus, I'm sorry. I couldn't think of the word rack. Um, and um, so we saw Joe come out with the gun, and by amazing good fortune, the owl turned to look. <laughs> so I held my breath, and he looked at Joe until Joe went back into the house, and then the owl turned back to us and screeched. <laughs> and I, we just had one take, of course, 
And I spent the next 24 hours praying that the lab didn't scratch the film because <laughs> I knew we would never get that shot again. Um, so it wasn't a visual effect. There were no visual effects. That's what I was thinking. The yeah, there, it no. was. Yeah, you couldn't do that. I then. know people think it's a puppet, but it, it's the real thing. Right. So you've been asked that before. Yes, <laughs> um, regularly. It's a, it's an astonishing little moment. I was like, yeah, how did they do that? Yes. Do you have another question, anyone? Was it a coincidence that on the license plate of the car, it says Mia as in Mia culpa? I don't know if that was a coincidence. I didn't ask for that. It's quite likely that the that the Teamsters decided that would be funny. <laughs> um, but I, I don't know. Now, interestingly enough, I love to rehearse. Most of my films I've done a week to ten days of rehearsal because it gets rid of that terrible moment when actors come onto the set and say, what's this scene about? Or what's my motivation here? Or why am I, why am I saying this? And it also means you can start much earlier in the morning because if you've done some rehearsal, you certainly you know what the first setup is. I actually usually I know what every setup in the film is before I start, but um, it tells me what the first setup is every day, so I can be DP and I can be setting it all up at seven o'clock in the morning. And if the actors are taking time in makeup or or wardrobe or, or late or anything, we're ready. So I said to Joe, I'd like to have rehearsals for this, and he said, No, please not. I don't like to rehearse. I like to be absolutely spontaneous. So that's what we did because, you know, one of the director's main jobs, perhaps the director's main job is to help everyone do their best work. And if everyone does their best work, you've got a good film at the end. And by everyone, I don't just mean the actors. I mean the, de the designer, the DP, everybody. Um, and sometimes you have to do it in a variety of different ways. Sometimes you just do it by being encouraging and sometimes you do it by having to be firm if you think they've got a bad idea or whatever. Joe said he didn't want to rehearse and um, that was fine with me. So it meant we took a little longer to make the film. But there was no rehearsal except on the day of each scene with any of the actors. And I agree, it's amazing <laughs> how well it turned out. Um, I think... Um, I think we did get the casting really right. Yeah. Fred Gwynn, nobody's ever mentions Fred. I think he was absolutely great as the judge. The, the two kids were terrific. I mean, I thought the whole cast really were, were wonderful. Austin Pendleton's performance is... <laughs> it's the only time I've had to hide behind the camera up so that the actors couldn't see I was laughing. <laughs> because I was crying with laughter behind the camera. Of, co of course, you know, Marissa Tomei is there because you got it. You saw her and you tested her. And yet, was there a moment when you started with her and you saw her in those, you know, outlandishly fabulous costumes and what she was bringing? Were you, were you kind of taken? Did she feel like she was, did you feel like she was even greater or big? Did you see how, what you were going to get? You know, did she exceed, I guess is what I'm saying. Yes, I think she exceeded. But I mean, I think the moment that we saw the first day's work, and she said, yeah, you blend. I just knew that we had the right actress. I mean, very early on in her first scene, it was so obvious that she was going to nail it. 
But of course, it's a big relief because you know I'd, I'd had a struggle to to get Fox to agree, and you know she wasn't really very well known. I mean, she'd done some television and a couple of small parts in films, but she hadn't done much. Um, at least not much that I'd seen. So, of course, I was anxious about it. Mm. You never really know what the actors are going to give you or what the chemistry is going to be between them until it happens. And sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. And you, that's something you can't predict. Was it a surprise when she got nominated for the Oscar? Not to me, because for the previous nine months we opened in march i think and for the previous eight or nine months anyone i ever spoke to in the business said who is that wonderful actress you had in vinnie i mean everybody without exception that was the first thing they wanted to ask about so i knew she had a tremendous following out there and i was pleased that she won because all the other people were very well-known actresses mostly foreign, but um, I wasn't surprised when she won because I just knew how much people loved her performance. Yeah. No, it's, still, it's still one of the most fun, most exuberant performances. Anyone else? Another question? Yes. There were thousands of worst moments in making the film. <laughs> <laughs> On the screen, do I have a favorite moment? I don't think I don't think I, I do. I think it's the, it's actually the only film I've ever made where I wouldn't change anything. And usually, you when you know, I think most directors feel this. You see your old films if you do see them. I mean, I tend not to. Um, and you think, oh, I, that could have been better, or I wish I'd cut that, or I wish I'd changed that. Or I don't feel that about anything in this film. So. Um, no, there isn't a worse moment for me on the screen. And there isn't the best moment. I, I like it all. Sorry to be so complacent. Well, As aside from the owl. Yes. Well, the owl was a, was a sort of small miracle. I loved Austin's scenes at the time. I mean, I thought they were really funny. No, I can't think of anything in the particular. I mean, the, the, the best moment, if you, if you direct comedies, the best moment is... The, the first test screening, if the audience laughs a lot. I mean, that's the moment when you discover if you got it right or wrong, or if you got it not quite right, what you got wrong. Um, and the test screening of this was just a joy. You know, they just laughed at everything, clapped at the end. And so that was the, really the happiest moment on the film. The whole thing was was very hard. It was very hot. It was very slow to make. It was 53 days, which is a lot for me. You know, we got behind schedule. It was supposed to be several days shorter. Um, but we got behind because of the courtroom. Um, but no, I can't think of a particularly special good or bad moment. I mean, every day is a, is a battle. Yes, I think, the, I think it's wonderfully edited. Tony Lombardo edited it. Um, he, he came to meet me and said he was Italian-American and he knew these people and he loved these people. And his father was Lou Lombardo, who directed Moonstruck. Sorry, edited, edited Moonstruck. And uh, Tony was just desperate to do it. He really loved it. Um, and, and he was a very good editor. I worked with him a lot after that. Um, 
it was a slow process. You know, we didn't have avids in those days or computers or anything. So those of you who are old enough to remember that meant that, you know, you, you had your work print and if you wanted to change the sequence of shots, it usually took a day or two. Um, you, you know, you had to take, take the little pieces apart and stick them together in a new way. And, and you couldn't just try something and say, well, let's just add a frame here or let's just, you know, it, it was a time-consuming business. So we got the film together working very hard after about six weeks. And then we looked at it and it was way too long. And the problem was that Fox had decided in advance before, we, before I shot the film that it didn't make any sense that William Gambini was down in Georgia, charged with murder, phoned his mother, and his mother never came. She never came to the trial. She never came down to see if she was all right. He, they said, that's not an Italian mother, that's impossible. So I was charged with finding a solution to this problem. And we were in pre-production. Um, so what I did was um, put in scenes in which it was established that after she discovered that he had been charged with murder, she had a heart attack. And she went to the hospital. And she couldn't leave the hospital. So Vinnie phoned her regularly from prison. And Bill phoned her regularly from prison. And they talked about her. And eventually, that's how we dealt with the missing mother. We, I couldn't bring her into it. They were just too, it would just have upset the balance of all the cast. So we edited the film, and there were all these boring scenes with the mother. And Tony said to me, can't we just take them all out? And I said, well, yeah, the studio might not like it, but let's see if they notice. So we took them all out, <laughs> and... It was never mentioned. Nobody, uh, if they did notice, they never said. So that was the biggest editing problem. And then we spent a lot of time in the last last part of the of post-production uh, on the sound. Uh, it was all analog sound in those days. So it was very hard to get the sound effects loud enough. We had, uh, you know, the sound effect of the train you uh, could only go on the needles, you know, could only go up to a certain point and then it started blasting. So we had to, the balance was very hard in those days to get uh, the, the the balance between soft and loud scenes when you couldn't have really loud scenes the way they do now. It sounded loud in here because it was just played very loud, but it wouldn't have been played that loud then. So we that was a big I issue in post. And also I was lucky that we found Randy Edelman to compose it um, he was a friend of Roger Birnbaum, was president of Fox, and they suggested him. And I think he wrote perfect music for the film. And uh, But before Randy came in, we had to do a temp track. I've never understood about temp tracks. Uh, they, they seem to me to be absurd. You, you either find the perfect tracks, in which case, why do you need the composer? Um, or you don't find the perfect tracks, in which case you're testing a film with music that isn't really right which is usually the case. Um, and that seems to fail to acknowledge that the music is an integral part of the film um, and a very important part of the film. But anyway, we did a very good temp track. We worked very hard at it and did a good temp track. And Randy came in, liked what we'd done, but made a lot of improvements. So editing the edit, editing period was 
very busy. It took it took the full ten weeks that the DGA allows, DGA agreement allows, and um, then, as I said, we didn't really change it after that. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that that music because um, uh, the the hard you know rock and roll cut you know the beginning of every. Uh, that falls hard on the beginning of a lot of sequences. Um, were you editing to that? Was that his music or were those like needle drops or? Uh, no, it was all his music except the, except Travis Tritt's music on the opening titles. Mm-hmm. He was a well-known country singer. I don't know how many of you know who he was or is. And uh, no, the rest was all Randy's music and we spotted it very carefully. Yeah. Uh, and we had it, you know, we, we had the film absolutely fine cut before Randy put, put the music on, recorded it and put it on. We did her first scene, You Blend. And when she said You Blend, I I knew she was the person we wanted. I mean, she read the whole scene perfectly, just the way she does it on, on, in the film. Um, it's, it's remarkable because, you know, she's very... You probably know she's very, very different from Mona Lisa Vito. But, I mean, I don't, I think it's true to say there wasn't one take of Marissa's in the whole shoot that we couldn't have used. It's an absolutely extraordinary performance. You know, so I don't know whether you've done your homework or not or whether you needed to, but Jonathan, before he was a director, wrote a lot of uh, movies and television, including a a very well-known series in England called... Well, there's two, Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister, um, and that's him. Uh, but before he, he, before he became a, a writer, he was an actor. And I believe, I, I, I did this research, but it's, it's Wikipedia, so sometimes they're wrong. You were in the first production of Fiddler on the Roof in the West End. I was. I played Mottle the Taylor in the original London cast of Fiddler. And that's how I know Austin, because he was the original model the tailor in New York. And he came to see Fiddler in London and wandered into the stage door and up to my dressing room saying, I, I, I don't know if you know who I am. My name's Austin. And I said, yeah, I know who you are. Come home for dinner. This was after the matinee. So I phoned Rita, my wife was sitting over there, uh, and I said, Austin Pendleton, and we'd... we'd uh, We'd seen him in a couple of films, and we were big fans. So I said, Austin's coming home for dinner. So we had just got married, and Rita had not yet learned to cook very well. Um, so she made, decided to make a souffle, which was a very brave thing to do. And it came out, I hope you don't mind my telling this story, it, it came out sort of like a piece of shoe leather. Um, and Austin, who is the most obliging person, at it and pronounced it delicious. And he might have meant it, who knows. And then he, we came back and he saw the show and, and we talked for much of the night. This was th- 20, 30 years before I made the film. I don't know how many years before. This was 67 and I made the film in 90-something, a long time before, and we've been friends ever since. So... And and prior to that, I think you started acting when you were at Cambridge and you were part of a troupe, a Cambridge... Cambridge circus. Cambridge Circus. Yes. My first job as an actor was on Broadway, <laughs> which is incredible, at the age of 21. And the other people on the show were John Cleese, 
Graham Chapman, Tim Brooke Taylor, and some people you might not know uh, here, Bill Oddy. And um, it was a review that had been done when we were students. We were rather like the English equivalent of the Second City from Chicago or Nichols and May. And we we did this review in London and it transferred to the West. We did it in Cambridge and a producer came to see it and incredibly transferred it to the West End of London where it had a reasonable run. And I wasn't in the original cast. I was in the band. Uh, and uh, I went back to Cambridge. Well, after that, I went to Edinburgh to act in Waiting for Godot, which uh, Stephen Frears directed. We were all students together. And then... At the end of my last year at Cambridge, where I got a law degree, which is was very helpful in the making of this film, I uh, got a phone call from one of the cast saying, uh, Cambridge Circus is going to Broadway, do you want to come with us? And I said, well, the Musicians' Union in New York wouldn't allow that. And he, they said, no, no, in the cast. So I said, well, sure. So I stopped law and became an actor and we, we opened in New York where we got five great reviews out of six, but the bad review was the New York Times. So we closed shortly afterwards and reopened in the village in a place called Square East where Second City played. Um, and we played there for some time. And yes, and that, so I was an actor by then. And then I did, act, did acting class in New York. And then I came back to England and got... Jobs in regional theatre, and weren't you? Weren't so when you were in New York? Didn't you guys do the Ed Sullivan show? Yes, that was my first TV show. Yeah, it was sort of that's how I started, and it was it's been downhill all the way really ever, <laughs> ever since. We did Ed Sullivan with seventy million viewers live, and it was the night that he had his big fight with Jackie Mason, which some of you may know about, and when he which finished. Oh, and he threw Jackie Mason down a flight of stairs and Jackie Mason didn't get on TV for the next 15 years. And that was all very exciting. Uh, and uh, I didn't know, you know, I, I thought, is this what television's always like? Well, you made our day today, so thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America 